You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to ReachMD's Mayo Clinic Update on Primary Care Child Mental Health. This is Dr. Peter Jensen, your host, and I am particularly delighted today because I have one of my colleagues and friends that I've gotten to know over the last four years since I've been here at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chris Wall. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Peter. It's nice to be here. Well, yeah, you, we're going to be doing a really hot topic today. Uh, Dr. Wall, Christopher Wall, is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and, again, a child psychiatrist. He's one of the hospital psychiatrists. He's on the Depression Research Center uh, and has been involved in just some wonderful cutting-edge research that he's been teaching me about since I've been here at Mayo Clinic. So, Chris, you know, we have a series of related persons that we've been interviewing, including a couple of yours and my colleagues, Dr. John Huxall, with conversations about what are best treatments for depression, and Dr. Paul Corkin, who's been talking about the biology of youth depression. But, you know, one of the things that we've learned, we want to maybe tackle a topic that's kind of in the middle of those other two, and that has to do with this whole issue of new and emerging treatments. And, of course, we've learned from Dr. Huxall that our treatments aren't always that great, uh, and we've heard that SSRIs are used and therapies like CBT and IPT, but we've learned that they may not work all that well for necessarily a lot of the kids. Maybe only half really are pretty pretty well off a year later, actually back to normal functioning. So I'm going to throw a tough one at you, and that is, why do you think these current treatments, why aren't they more effective? Well, it is a tough question, and in the years that I've been working with kids that come into the hospital as well as in our outpatient practice, one of the things that has become pretty clear is that not all depression is created equal. Sometimes we try to treat depression as though it's a single entity, but really it's uh, pretty different from one kid to the next. And if we try to make all depression fit under, you know, one way of understanding it, I think we end up missing the point. And, and I think uh, when we do that, we also probably give the wrong treatments. So I think to start with, the treatments probably need to be more tailored or more individualized to the type of depression that a particular adolescent or even an adult has. Well, you know, that's fascinating, and we I know we talk here at Mayo Clinic a lot about the need for tailoring and individualized treatments, and I know you've been doing some work looking at individual genes and then kids' response to depression treatments. What can you tell us about that? We know, for example, that uh, certain people, uh, when they're given a type of medication, really struggle with that medication, either because they have too many side effects or because the medication doesn't really work. And uh, another person can be given the same medication and the same dose, and it works really well for them. And the genes that we've started to look at and are available, actually, for clinical care at Mayo and some other places, really look at the way the liver, for example, metabolizes the drug. Those are called the cytochrome P450 enzyme system genes. 
And uh, we know that uh, a lot of people have differences in the way their liver uh, handles um, medications that are commonly used for depression, like Prozac. You know, I was going to ask you, uh, when you get these differences, could this mean that people actually have different kinds of depression? Well, that's the other kind of interesting thing. So not only would a medicine maybe not work as well for someone because their body doesn't handle it as well, but also we've learned that some of these genes are actually in the brain itself, and um, the way the, the chemistry is handled is actually quite different. So yes, there could be differences in the type of depression that someone has because of the way their brain handles serotonin as a chemical, for example. Absolutely fascinating. So you're saying that the genes in the brain or genes in, say, the body's metabolic system, the liver or whatever, could be either place that's causing someone not to respond. Absolutely. And uh, there's pretty compelling evidence that uh, if we can find the right drug for the right type of depression, we're going to have a much higher likelihood of helping that person have relief of their symptoms. Is there anything ready for prime time on this? Like, is there anything we can do now if someone's not responding? Or is this all in the research arena? Well, right now there are some commercially available tests, and we even use some of those here at Mayo Clinic, that will give, uh, for example, after a cheek swab, uh, you can send the swab in for analysis, and then you get a report back that shows, uh, for example, the liver metabolism as well as some of the brain metabolism or response uh, genes uh, that could be uh, causing complications in treatment, and, and that is available and uh, uh, relatively routinely used here clinically. So when you have a depressed uh, teen, how often do you find you benefited by using one of those tests? Well, it kind of depends. If it's someone's first episode of depression, we would tend not to uh, order one of those kinds of tests. Instead, if it's, if it's a complicated or treatment-resistant depression, and we have also heard, for example, that they have a hard time with medication side effects, we'd be more likely to order one of those uh, tests to help guide our decision-making to see if um, maybe they've just never been on the right medication or maybe um, you know, uh, they aren't going to respond to a certain class of medications because of their serotonin transporter or serotonin receptor. Very interesting. We're talking today to Dr. Christopher Wall, Assistant Professor of Child Psychiatry and Psychiatry here at Mayo Clinic, who's doing cutting-edge work on new treatments for depression in youth. So, I, you know, Chris, I've learned so many new acronyms since coming here, like TMS, DBS, etc. Um, and and I've been learning that these apply to some of the new emerging and potentially alternative treatments for maybe where the first treatment for depression wasn't effective. Can you tell us about these cutting-edge new potentially alternative treatments? Thanks for that question because it's such an interesting area. And the one acronym that you mentioned, TMS, stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And we even put an R in front of that, so it's repetitive uh, TMS, meaning that uh, we have a strong magnet that pulses and generates an electromagnetic field, and we try to focus that field on a certain part of the brain uh, that we think is implicated in uh, depression that isn't really responding, for example, to medications. So TMS is actually 
uh, new and, and relatively understudied in children, but was FDA approved for adults uh, in 2009 and is actually being used relatively routinely in clinical practices across the country. Wow. And, and what are you doing? Because I know you're on the cutting edge with this. What are you doing with it? Well, we've done a couple of things. The first is we wanted to see would it be safe and tolerable in adolescents. And we found in our first study, which was uh, published in 2011, that sure enough, kids could tolerate it. But not only could they tolerate it, we found that uh, five out of the seven that went through our trial were either much or very much improved after a course of treatment. And this was after failing on SSRIs? Yeah, this is after failing at least two prior uh, medication trials. So these were kids that had been struggling with depressive symptoms for quite a long time. They had been on medications that weren't working, and we tried TMS. And uh, we found nice success, good safety, no safety issues, in fact, and uh, it was uh, very tolerable. So it was it was really kind of a great little uh, what we call pilot study. So what are your plans? I mean, that's pretty exciting. What's the next step for you with TMS? As I mentioned, you know, we, we just are wrapping up uh, a follow-up to that pilot study where not only did we want to see could we uh, replicate those findings in adolescents, but we also wanted to make sure that we were focusing it on the precise location called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, DLPFC, in order to make sure that we were really optimizing treatment for these kids. But we're working with one of our colleagues in neuroradiology to also look at brain chemistry before and after the treatment. So for kids that are going through our uh, just finishing trial, we measure their brain chemistry using an MRI technique called MRS, before they started their treatment and then once again at the end of their treatment to see how the brain chemistry is shifting. And um, I've just been talking with my colleague in neuroradiology and we are quite excited about what we're uh, starting to see. So we could really be impacting these kids in a way that shows up not just with them and their, their families saying they're feeling better, but also showing the chemistry changes that actually demonstrate that they're actually better. So what are these chemicals you're, you're looking for, and what, what are you expecting to see, hoping to see, or might see? That's another kind of thing. It's uh, still called research because we're not exactly sure <laughs> what we're going to find. But, uh, you know, in the past when the, the medications came along, like Prozac, we really focused on serotonin, for example. The newer chemistry that we're looking at um, is, uh, for example, glutamate and GABA. And there are different theories about not having enough glutamate or uh, having too much versus not having enough GABA or having too much. And so the idea is with TMS, for an example, you might be able to change levels of glutamate or GABA that you can actually measure with MRS. And uh, when you when you change those levels, you might have a good clinical impact on their depression and their experience in life. So, um, yeah, the, those are the chemicals that I think are probably the hottest of the topics right now in, in this type of research. I mentioned the TMS. Now I've learned RTMS. Uh, any other acronyms that are cutting-edge potential depression treatments? 
Well, you also mentioned DBS, and that's called deep brain stimulation, and that's where they'll actually do neurosurgery and implant a device in the brain to try to treat symptoms that really aren't going away with medications. Obviously, that's a lot more invasive and a lot more risk associated with neurosurgery, but we've uh, seen exceptional outcomes for kids and adults that have struggled with uh, very resistant and debilitating Tourette's syndrome, types of dystonias, and a variety of other really um, uh, debilitating conditions. So DBS is fantastic. And I'll throw another acronym at you uh, called TDCS, Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation. And that's getting a lot of research interest, a lot of articles published in 2012 as well as even this year, and uh, that's uh, where you would actually uh, basically wear a, uh, a small device and uh, place a couple of small electrodes on your scalp, and it's just enough electrical current to create a bit of a tingling sensation on the scalp. But they're finding, some of the researchers are finding that it seems to be having some impact on uh, mood and anxiety. And so there's a lot more that needs to be studied with this, but it's yet another emerging uh, technique when you start thinking about the brain as being more than just a chemistry organ, but an electrical and chemistry organ. That's very interesting, but it reminds me of another electrical stimulation device, ECT. Does that still have any kind of role? I think it does, and it, it obviously gets uh, terrible press, but as a psychiatrist who you know has worked with folks that no longer eat and, and uh, they're just only a shell of themselves, they just are so sick with depression, uh, ECT is still uh, the gold standard treatment uh, because you can take someone over a couple of weeks using uh, brief ECT episodes and uh, over those couple of weeks, they can come back to life or family uh, when they finally, you know, when they've started to recover, the family says, you know, it's like I've got my dad back or it's like I've got my brother back. It's pretty amazing to see the benefits that ECT still can play in the most resistant and uh, most, uh, you know, horrifying episodes of depression. And we still do perform it at uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, rarely, but in uh, what we feel are life threatening uh, episodes of depression that really haven't responded to anything else. And when we do, for example, treat with ECT, we have to have three different child and adolescent psychiatrists review the situation to make sure that no one's missing anything that we could try instead, uh, because it is pretty invasive treatment when, uh, when you come down to the idea of having to have anesthesia and, and recovery process. Well, just in your discussions, you're conveying such a wonderful empathy for these kids. If I still had any teenagers, Chris, I'd be sending them to you. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.